my desk in my office, I keep a small clay pot that I made in college. It's raku, which is a kind of pottery that began in Japan centuries ago as a way of making bowls for the Japanese tea ceremony. This one is more than 400 years old. Each one was pinched or carved out of a ball of clay, and it was the imperfections that people cherished. Everyday pots like this cup take eight to 10 hours to fire. I just took this out of the kiln last week and the kiln itself takes another day or two to cool down, but raku is really fast. You do it outside and you take the kiln up to temperature in 15 minutes, it goes to 1500 degrees. And as soon as you see that the glaze has melted inside, you can see that faint sheen. You turn the kiln off and you reach in with these long metal tongs, you grab the pot. And in Japan, this red hot pot would be immediately immersed in a solution of green tea. And you can imagine what that steam would smell like. But here in the United States, we ramp up the drama a little bit and we drop our pots into sawdust, which catches on fire and you take a garbage pail and you put it on top and smoke starts pouring out. I would come home with my clothes reeking of wood smoke. I love Raku because it allows me to play with the elements. I can shape a pot out of clay and choose a glaze, but then I have to let it go to the fire and the smoke. And what's wonderful is the surprises that happen, like this crackle pattern, because it's really stressful on these pots. They go from 1500 degrees to room temperature in the space of just a minute. Raku is a wonderful metaphor. Hello and welcome to The Journey, your radio show, hosted by Neville D'Angelo, author of A Soundbite Life and Flight of the Fused Monkeys, a PRG Emerging Technologies Forum keynote speaker and founder of Rio Sports. I am Joseph Ellison. Enjoy! I am Neville. It's game time. What's that word? Do me a favor! Do me a favor! Let's help Grandpa find that word. An incredible man of astounding intellect. He is full of wisdom, but certain words occasionally escape him. So he has provided us with remarkable clues. This is our chance to do him a great big favor. Let's use his clues to find that word. <laughs> Here is clue number two. From a working class family, I didn't stand the chance. So I left London and I moved to Japan, where I didn't experience people asking me where I was really from. I was just another gaijin, which ironically means outsider. I was immersed in a culture that honors both making and craft, where people perfect their craft over generations. It's a culture that masters both time and space so that artists can truly create with freedom. And what I discovered was a place I wasn't angry with. Tokyo hadn't wronged me in any way. I could no longer create with anger 
or out of pain. I had to bravely allow myself to create from a different place. And what I found is this incredible tool transcended a line on paper. I found this thing that connected my head to my heart and my hand to everything. I could see the world in new ways. I found connections and corners and the solutions to problems I never knew existed. It's like the world with all its positive and negative spaces could now be seen. And just by seeing it, there was no longer any fear. It's like my pen was a flashlight and the unknown was still there, but it wasn't scary. After five years of living in Japan and focusing on my craft, I felt like I needed a new challenge. It's alright! So, what's the word? Did you find the word? Here is our third clue. This is not enough. This is not enough, and it's certainly not enough if you want to really make things happen. Because you need to start with a base of knowledge. Knowledge is the toolbox for your imagination. The more you know, the more you have to work with. Think about it. If I want to come up with a brand new solar car or a cure for cancer, I need to know something about engineering and biology. I need something to work with. And so how do we, how do we get knowledge? Well, of course, you can come and listen to talks. You can read books. But one of the most powerful ways to get knowledge about the world is by paying attention. We normally don't pay attention to our world in a way where we really find interesting opportunities and often the solutions waiting right in front of us. A great example that um, I, I love because it's so mundane and yet so fascinating is a fellow named David Friedberg who was commuting through San Francisco every day and he made an interesting observation just looking out the window of his car. He noticed that the bike rental station that was near the train was closed on days when it rained. And he thought, wow, that's really interesting how many other businesses are influenced by the weather. And he realized how many types of companies are affected by the weather. Ended up starting a company called Climate Corporation, where they basically sell weather insurance to all different types of companies. This would never have happened if he hadn't been paying attention. So we have imagination, we have knowledge. But there's another important part of your innovation engine, and that is your attitude. If you are not driven, motivated, and have the confidence that you can solve your problem, you will not solve it. It is not easy. It's not easy to come up with really big ideas, and it's certainly not easy to bring them to life. Unfortunately, most people see themselves as puzzle builders. This means they're looking, they kind of have their box top, and they know what the picture looks like, and they know where they're trying to get, but here's the problem. What happens if you're a puzzle builder and you're missing a piece in the puzzle. What happens? You can't finish the puzzle. You're stuck. You know, you said to your boss, sorry, you know, that part is out of stock, okay? You say, sorry, we can't get there. True innovators, true entrepreneurs are not puzzle builders. They're quilt makers. They take all the things they have at their disposal, all the things, even if they're kind of strange and surprising, and they figure out how to leverage them to make amazing things happen. <laughs> What's that word? Along the journey, we stop at intriguing places and meet fascinating people with novel solutions to some of life's tricky questions. And we play a few games and track the remarkable characters of three classic books, A Soundbite Life, Flight of the Fused Monkeys, and Illicet.
A Time to Begin Again, all of which can be found on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. We are playing What's the Word? Grandpa has left us remarkably informative clues to help us help him find an important word. Have you found it? We brought in some additional help. Ted Ed is exceptionally instructive. There, Gareth Gaskell explains how our brains process speech. Perhaps that instruction will help us sort out Grandpa's missing word. Let's see. The average 20-year-old knows between 27,000 and 52,000 different words. By age 60, that number averages between 35,000 and 56,000. Spoken out loud, most of these words last less than a second. So with every word, the brain has a quick decision to make. Which of those thousands of options matches the signal? About 98% of the time, the brain chooses the correct word. But how? Speech comprehension is different from reading comprehension, but it's similar to sign language comprehension, though spoken word recognition has been studied more than sign language. The key to our ability to understand speech is the brain's role as a parallel processor, meaning that it can do multiple different things at the same time. Most theories assume that each word we know is represented by a separate processing unit that has just one job, to assess the likelihood of incoming speech matching that particular word. In the context of the brain, the processing unit that represents a word is likely a pattern of firing activity across a group of neurons in the brain's cortex. When we hear the beginning of a word, several thousand such units may become active because with just the beginning of a word, there are many possible matches. Then, as the word goes on, more and more units register that some vital piece of information is missing and lose activity. Possibly well before the end of the word, just one firing pattern remains active, corresponding to one word. This is called the recognition point. In the process of honing in on one word, the active units suppress the activity of others, saving vital milliseconds. Most people can comprehend up to about eight syllables per second. Yet the goal is not only to recognize the word, but also to access its stored meaning. The brain accesses many possible meanings at the same time, before the word has been fully identified. We know this from studies which show that even upon hearing a word fragment, like cap, listeners will start to register multiple possible meanings, like captain or capital, before the full word emerges. This suggests that every time we hear a word, there's a brief explosion of meanings in our minds, and by the recognition point, the brain has settled on one interpretation. The recognition process moves more rapidly with a sentence that gives us context than in a random string of words. Context also helps guide us towards the intended meaning of words with multiple interpretations, like bat or crane, or in cases of homophones, like no or no. For multilingual people, the language they are listening to is another cue, used to eliminate potential words that don't match the language context. So what about adding completely new words to this system? Even as adults, we may come across a new word every few days. 
But if every word is represented as a fine-tuned pattern of activity distributed over many neurons, how do we prevent new words from overwriting old ones? We think that to avoid this problem, new words are initially stored in a part of the brain called the hippocampus, well away from the main store of words in the cortex, so they don't share neurons with other words. Then, over multiple nights of sleep, the new words gradually transfer over and interweave with old ones. Researchers think this gradual acquisition process helps avoid disrupting existing words. So in the daytime, unconscious activity generates explosions of meaning as we chat away. At night, we rest, but our brains are busy integrating new knowledge into the word network. When we wake up, this process ensures that we're ready for the ever-changing world of language. Oh yeah! Don't you know it? I am a writer. Writing books is my profession, but it's more than that, of course. It is also my great lifelong love and fascination. And I don't expect that that's ever going to change. But that said, um, something kind of peculiar has happened recently in my life and in my career, which has caused me to have to sort of recalibrate my whole relationship with this work. And um, the peculiar thing is that I recently wrote this book, this memoir called Eat, Pray, Love, um, which decidedly unlike any of my previous books, um, went out in the world for some reason and became this big mega sensation international bestseller thing. The result of which is that everywhere I go now, people treat me like I'm doomed. Um, seriously, doomed, doomed. Like they come up to me now like all worried and they say, aren't you afraid? Um, aren't you afraid you're never gonna be able to top that? Um, aren't you afraid you're gonna keep writing for your whole life and you're never again gonna create a book that anybody in the world cares about at all, ever, again? So that's reassuring, you know, um, uh, but it would be worse except for that I, I happen to remember that over 20 years ago when I first started telling people when I was a teenager that I wanted to be a writer, I was met with this same kind of sort of fear-based reaction and people would say, aren't you afraid you're never going to have any success? Aren't you afraid the humiliation of rejection will kill you? Aren't you afraid that you're going to work your whole life at this craft and nothing's ever going to come of it and you're going to die on a scrap heap of broken dreams with your mouth filled with bitter ash of failure <laughs> like that you know and um, the answer short answer to all those questions is yes um, yes I'm afraid of all those things and I always have been and I'm afraid of many many more things besides that you know people can't even guess at like um, seaweed and, and other things that are scary but when it comes to writing um, the, the thing that I've been sort of thinking about lately and wondering about lately is why you know is it rational is it logical that um, anybody should be expected to be afraid of the work that they feel they were put on this earth to do you know um, and what is it specifically about creative ventures that seems to make us really nervous about each other's mental health in a way that other careers kind of don't do you know um, um, like my dad, for example, was a chemical engineer, and um, I don't recall once in his 40 years of chemical engineering anybody asking him if he was afraid to be a chemical engineer, you know, it just didn't come, like, get chemical engineering block, John, you know, how's it going? And um, it, it just didn't come up like that, you know, but to be fair, right, um, chemical engineers as a group, you know, haven't really earned a reputation over the centuries for being alcoholic manic depressives, um, and... We writers 
you know, we kind of do have that reputation. And not, not just writers, but creative people across all genres, it seems, have this reputation for being enormously mentally unstable. Um, and, you know, all you have to do is look at the very grim death count in the 20th century alone of, of really magnificent creative minds who died young and often at their own hands, you know. Um, and even the ones who didn't literally commit suicide seem to be really undone by their gifts. You know, um, Norman Mailer, just before he died, last interview, he said, every one of my books has killed me a little more. An extraordinary statement to make about your life's work, you know, but we don't even blink when we hear somebody say this because we've heard that kind of stuff for so long and somehow we've completely internalized and accepted collectively this notion that creativity and suffering are somehow inherently linked and that artistry in the end will always ultimately lead to anguish. And the question that I want to ask everybody here today is, um, are you guys all cool with that idea? Like, are you... <laughs> comfortable with that because um, you look at it even from an inch away and you know I'm not at all comfortable with that assumption I think it's odious and I also think it's dangerous and I don't want to see it perpetuated into the next century I think better if we encourage you know our great creative minds to live you know um, and uh, and I, I definitely know that in, in my case, in my situation, um, it would be very dangerous for me to start sort of leaking down that dark path of assumption, you know, particularly given the circumstance that I'm in right now in my career, which is, you know, like, check it out, I'm pretty young, I'm only about 40 years old, I still have maybe another four decades of work left in me, and it's exceedingly likely that anything I write from this point forward is going to be judged by the world as the work that came after the freakish success of my last book, right? Um, I, I should just put it bluntly, because we're all sort of friends here now, it's exceedingly likely that my greatest success is behind me. You know, um, so Jesus, what a thought, you know, like that's the kind of thought that could lead a person to start drinking gin at nine o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I don't want to go there. You know, I would prefer to keep doing this work that I love. And so the question becomes how? Yes, we do. We do, Grandpa. I see Grandpa is pointing to a note which says, These clues, in order of appearance, are of Julie Bernstein, Four Lessons in Creativity, Chantal Martin, How Drawing Can Set You Free, Tina Selig, The Six Characteristics of Truly Creative People, Gareth Gaskell, How Do Our Brains Process Speech? And Elizabeth Gilbert, Your Elusive Creative Genius. Grappa's fifth clue is this. The word he needs was never mentioned in any of the clues presented and is likely made up of Exactly seven letters. The Journey is available free on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, Rio Sports Radio, and several of your favorite internet platforms. Download, embed, and share via any of the social media you love.
What's the Word is a segment of the games we play. You can access and enjoy the games we play on the Journeys platform. That address is thejourney.riosports.com. Click on Games We Play. Select What's the Word. There you'll also find the full presentations and profiles of each of our clue selections. The games we play. What's the word? See you next week. <laughs>